0: Spencer, how many miles did you ride on your
1: bicycle this past week? Um, Not not that many. I, I went to a wedding, had some other stuff going on. It was a little snowy at the start of the week. Maybe I might have gotten 50 miles. Well, 50 miles is the magic number, as listeners of the Vell News Podcast
0: may know, because our sponsor, Health IQ, uses 50 miles a week of riding as the benchmark. Uh, benchmark. The, the benchmark. And if you ride 50 miles a week, you can get $500,000 in life insurance coverage, starting at just $20 a month with Health IQ. To see if you qualify,
1: you can go to healthiq.com slash news.
0: Spencer, why do we like Health IQ?
1: Health IQ has been sponsoring our podcast for quite some time now, and they just provide a great service to cyclists like you and I, and uh, an affordable way to do life insurance. Yeah, it's for cyclists, runners, Vegan swimmers. Basically, if you're a healthy person,
0: then Health IQ can get you a great rate on life insurance because they work with healthy people like us. So remember, 50 miles, healthiq.com slash VeloNews. Let's get on with the podcast. It's the VeloNews Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer here in the completely redesigned VeloNews Podcast studios. Uh, And by completely redesigned, I mean, we have a round table now. That allows us to stare at each other uh it is a wonderful monday in boulder colorado i'm joined in this redesigned studio by
1: spencer paulison hello spencer hey fred how was your weekend it was pretty nice good good fall weather here in colorado no more snow, you snow a, was done you went to a bike racer wedding i certainly did it are you like quite a thing recovering from your bike racer wedding i feel all right today okay Yesterday was a little shaky. Yeah, good.
0: I'm yeah, keep my eye on you. Uh, All right, D- Dane Cash, you are also
2: here. Dane, how was your wedding? Your uh, wedding? How was your weekend? My weekend was Ooh. great. Yeah, there was no wedding in my weekend, but it was great. Went on a little hike, uh, other side of the divide. It was lovely. Fall colors. Yeah, just
0: everything is just great in Colorado it's right really now. Great. I love it,
2: uh, guys. We have a very special
0: guest. We have a real life. Pro bike racer in the flesh. He's even wearing his kit, so we know which one it is. In the room right now. And that is Robin Carpenter of the Rally Pro Cycling Team. Yay, Robin. Hello, Robin. Welcome to the studio. Uh, Robin, you're also in town for a bike racer wedding. What was your bike racer wedding like? Oh, it was... uh...
3: Pretty much the same as all bike racer weddings, I think. Yeah? You know, only talking to the cyclists.
0: Yeah, talking to cyclists. Maybe have like two drinks and do some dancing on the dance floor and fall asleep at eight.
3: Yeah, two drink maximum for sure.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, Robin is in the studio. We're going to talk to Robin all about his year of racing because you had a very exciting year of racing. I believe it was about a year ago I did an interview with you. uh, And you talked about the excitement and anticipation of going and doing European racing road races and you did your your share I would say you did a pretty good amount of european racing this year
3: Yeah I totally delivered we had a we had an awesome time we did some super awesome races
0: Well and you spent like most of, a lot of those races in the breakaway
3: I mean phew. How else am I going to do anything in those races, man? <laughs> I've got nothing else.
0: Yeah. So we're going to about, talk to Robin about what it was like to be in the uh, European breakaways. Uh, first, guys, we got some news to get to. Uh, news, news, news. We had uh, Cyclocross World Cup go on this past weekend in Switzerland. Spencer, what happened in that World Cup?
1: It was uh, kind of a new venue. It was in Bern, Switzerland. Uh A bit of a a bit of a weird scheduling thing. Um, World champion Wout Van Aert actually wrote an opinion column about how it was not scheduled well because the day before it was a Super Prestige, which is really important for those uh, for those Belgian racers, especially. And then they had to go right to Switzerland. Some of them skipped the Super Prestige in favor of the World Cup, but it was uh, eh, I I wasn't a big fan of this race. It looked that the the course was kind of had some weird curvy things, and uh, it, it didn't help that it was just dusty and dry, kind of your typical early season cross race, but, uh, meant that it was kind of a bit of the, the dirt time trial that Dane hates so much. Um, Marianne Vos, uh, did have a good battle with Anna Maria worst, um, worst, best name in cycling. Um, okay. every time I read that, I'm yeah. like, ah, oh, Maria, like, lost, lost in bad, translation, bad yeah. bike racer name. Well, maybe if you spoke Dutch, you would understand it's it true. better, Fred, you should be a little more culturally sensitive. Um, so Marianne Voss wins like you would expect her to. And man, I'm just. I'm telling you, she's going to win the World Cup and World Championships this year. She's on a tear and is focused on cross uh, for the first time in a few years. And then in the men's race, Matthew Vanderpoel rides away with this. was such a boring race. Matthew Vanderpoel just was off the front for like seven laps by himself, just riding, 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 riding. And while wow Van Aert was like five seconds behind the whole time. Mm. And Van Aert, unfortunately, was back there because he had a uh, drop chain fairly early in the mm. race, which I think. I don't know. I don't see him beating Vanderpool in this type of race to begin with, but it certainly doesn't help when you drop a chain. Like A few guys had dropped chains, actually. It was sort of a thing. I don't understand why these guys are still having this issue come up, but apparently apparently, it's a problem, even if it's dry and dusty like the Swiss race. Uh, it's a trend story, you know? Yeah. Just, that's mm. a cool thing to do in European cyclocross
0: right now. Well, yeah. Did you drop your chain? Yes, me too. Uh, coming up in the women's race... Catherine Compton. Katie Compton. Yeah, Katie third Compton. Place.
1: Third I should say. Very good ride for her. Um, and um, also uh, in the top 10, our Canadian friend, Magalie Rochette. So, Excellent. Yes. Good to see her showing up at the World Cups in Europe.
0: Uh, we had some road racing go on, too, with the Tour of Guangxi. Final World Tour race of the year. Yeah, last one. Guangxi. I really <laughs> don't care about this race. I feel bad. Uh, it's a... It looks like a very difficult race. Um, We have a piece on the site, too, about how it is the bridge between east and west. Uh, Dane, what can you tell us about what happened there in Guangxi?
2: Well, Guangxi had basically one big climber day. The fourth stage was the queen stage, and the other days were for the sprinters, so you got to see a nice little showcase of sprinting talent, guys like Dylan Grunewagen, who we've seen all year. Fabio Jakobsen won two stages for Quick Step, bringing their total of stage wins to 1,007, I don't know, something really large. But Johnny Moscon was your race winner. He won the Queen stage and then held on throughout the rest of the race. So everybody's favorite Italian sky rider, Johnny Moscon. Fan yeah. favorite. Yeah. Right. Fan I saw some
0: stories about how this was like a redemption win for him. And I'm like, how does winning Tour of Guangxi make up for punching people in the head and using racial slurs?
2: Yeah, not sure about is that, that. Is that is
0: there like a direct correlation there? Mm.
3: Just jock culture. Yeah, yeah. it's you true. Know.
0: Just winning, just being good. Yeah. Uh, we had a, a story on the site talking yeah, about how this Tour of Guangxi is the latest race to try and bridge between East and West. It's owned by Dalian Wanda, which used to own Velo News in an indirect way for a hot minute. We were the key asset of Dalian Wanda's uh, yeah global sports assets. Um, But this made me uh, think about the Outer Line stories that we had on the site earlier this year about the original tour of China in the early 90s and how that also was seen as a bridge between East and West. And it was sponsored by some giant like cigarette company. And there were all these just wacky tales
2: of what it was like to put a bike race on in China back then.
1: Cigarette sponsorship's a nice, uh, yeah, it's a good time. Richmond
2: World's had a big cigarette sponsor. That went off without a hitch. So really? Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I did not know that. Tobacco belt, you know, it's what you got to do. Dane, yeah. our resident, Virginia. That's right. Dane's smoking two cigarettes right now. That's just how I roll wow. when I podcast. Yeah. Flavor country. Yeah. Uh,
0: I think this race is interesting because so many uh, world tour team sponsors actually do have interests in China at the moment. You know, EF talking about how they have some big office over there. Um, some of the other sponsors say, you know, they have business interests in China, whether or not the tour of Guangxi will help these companies uh, execute on their business goals in china i guess that's a big yet to be seen
1: well and there was also i think an announcement recently about a new chinese
2: team that got uh brought online the, the last week I, I didn't really look too closely into. That. You know yeah looks like they're, I'm talking about? yeah planning into 2019 i think to, okay. to bring that team live but i think one thing with this race that maybe is a is a way in which it'll be different from past forays into china the riders seem to have enjoyed it and i mean when a lot of the stories that i've seen talking to riders who are over there make it sound like it's been a really nice experience. And you did not hear a lot of that about Tour of Beijing. People seem to really dislike going there. So that could help.
0: Well, they had really nice pagodas. Like I was checking out Gregor Brown's Instagram feed. Gregor was over there covering it for us. And every other photo was some like just gorgeous lit up pagoda that Gregor was hanging out underneath. Like his his Instagram pagoda game was just really mm. on point. Kudos yeah. to you, Gregor. <laughs> no one else liked the the pagoda photos. It's pretty obscure. <laughs> hey, you know it's like it's like what was that website that just had photos of barns in like the middle of nowhere or cabins? Yeah, I like barns. Yeah, cabins and barns and pagodas. I, I could get into barns.
2: I like the video of Rigoberto Iran dancing that we got on. Twitter oh my gosh! Over the yeah, that, that was amazing. Big. Yeah.
0: The best part is that he's dancing to this Latin song, and he just looks so natural and great, and then he grabs the mic and starts Starts singing, and it's
3: like,
2: oh, yeah,
3: he
0: was feeling it. Yeah, whatever. Kudos to you, Rigoberto. All right, that's the news. The other piece of news, obviously, that I alluded to at the beginning of the podcast, is that it's wedding season. It's bike racer wedding season. October is the official uh, time for bike racers to tie the knot. Robin, you tied the knot a year ago in October. Why is this month such a special month for uh, bike racers and holy matrimony?
3: Because apparently our only friends are also pro bike racers who are on the same exact schedule as all of us. Yeah, it's a, yeah I think October 1 is officially the start, but you're still, uh, you know, run a risk of missing some of your, some of your buddies, you know, depending on how, how important they are. If they're now- still racing Japan or, or China.
0: Is it a matter of like that is the time of year when you're able to actually like you know you don't have to worry about training for cut example. loose yeah
3: yeah probably I think it's mostly about like scheduling you got everybody who's just I mean lining up a group of friends that who are all racing you know in like professional circuit during the year is just about impossible like you can't it's just always convenient so yeah fall weddings. I don't know a single cyclist who hasn't gotten married in either a fall or sometimes a winter wedding, but you know, October is generally the month to do it.
0: So you were able to do this race, but it sounds like you may, there may have been conflicts to begin with. Like you guys were thinking about doing some rally, was thinking about doing some races later in the year, but then the schedule opened up. What was, what was that like for you? Oh
3: yeah. Actually, I thought I was supposed to be in (laughs) Guangxi right now, but uh, I think they figured out that If Jonas and Pat are the ones planning next year and they have to keep working until November, next year's just not going to happen. So (laughs) I think they just sort of scrubbed the whole like last month of the schedule, which is, you know, it's fine. I don't think.
1: Did the team actually have an invite?
3: Uh, I think we definitely had one to Turkey. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think China was like a maybe. But I think they were talking like hardcore about going to Turkey, which I don't know. Would have been interesting. Yeah. At the very least,
1: I, I heard it was a different organizer this year at Turkey, which um, meant it was like a little less smooth than in years past. I did
3: hear some complaining about a uh, some like non world tour stuff going on, like in terms of standards.
1: Yeah, so long like transfers, a un- unsafe, maybe that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's a tricky one because that race has always been hit or miss. I mean, at one point, I remember I think it was a spring race, and then they had yeah, to they push it to it. the fall because of organizational challenges, and then. All the security concerns in Turkey are' it's, it's, it's a little yeah. patchy in that way too. so it, it does make you wonder with with the world tour like when when are they going to really like kind of try to slap some serious standards on these? Well there's races. so many races. yeah, so many. yeah, they've added more and more and that makes it hard to control them all, I think. Especially you were at a bike racer wedding too. I sure was. like what's the typical
0: like uh, ebb and flow of bike racer wedding?
1: Um, Well, a lot of the bike racers I know, um, you know, they, they live their lives in extremes where it's like you're racing, intense, 100%, just balls to the walls, or you're laying in a hotel room, not doing anything at all. And so I feel like when it comes time for the off season, like Robin's saying, when everyone sort of has a minute to catch their breath, go home and everything, they sort of need that intensity at some point when maybe they don't usually get it. So it's like, let's drink heavily. Really fast and just make this happen. And plus, they're all like 135 pounds, very skinny. Um, I, yeah, it, it leads to some excess, which uh, it's always pretty entertaining. And I at
3: 8,500 feet.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My the wedding I went to was, yes, it was very high altitude, um, so that affects them as well. Although, you know, they're probably better than most in that respect.
3: I heard yours was a little more lit than mine. Okay.
1: <laughs> well, you know, we don't want to, you know, don't want to kiss and tell or anything, <laughs> no, so we're not going to no. call anyone out. But yeah, it was fun, though. It was cool.
3: With
0: your wedding, Robin, like uh, so, I planned a wedding and did. I was married last year too, and I remember, <laughs> you know, having to do some, you know, planning around like being at the Tour de France and being at, on the road. And you know, thanks to my wife for picking up a lot of that slack because I was, you know, different time zones and focusing on getting yelled at by French gendarmes. But what I think that speaks to the the larger question of like, how is it to plan basic domestic, like everyday life things when you are a bike racer who's on the road all the time how do you navigate that
3: i guess you just kind of get it done when you can you know you come back you have a rest week and then it's just not really a rest week because you're just doing way too much other life stuff i always run into that problem on like recovery days or like days with extended like periods of time no training you're just like oh i have all this other stuff that's been like ramming up my to-do list and i'll just get all that done and then you, you know by the end of the day you're just like oh my goodness What have I done to myself? (laughs) This is like a whole other day of training.
0: So like there's, you know, you're like not just sitting around with your legs up all the time when you're not on your bike.
3: I mean, maybe some guys like, but I'm, you know, my wife's a scientist and she's always in the lab doing research. And so I'm the one who I'm, I'm, I'm the, like the kept man stay-at-home houseboy. so I, I, I get all the domestic work done
1: <laughs> i just assumed you guys had handlers to like do all your chores and go pick up groceries and like you know that type of stuff maybe in the world tour
3: well at
2: least pro continental now right i mean <laughs> yeah. that isn't that what you get when you go up to that yeah, level?
3: i'm now pro quote
0: yeah, yeah.
1: there you go
0: <laughs> so robin you've been on the radar for a lot of villainous readers for a number of years you were uh, famously on hincapi team you won a stage of the um old usa pro challenge you've won stages at utah you won or alberta overall you've had a tremendous amount of success in the domestic scene and i remember a question that i had for you was like you were like you were the guy who had the level of success where in a previous generation of domestic racing you would have been taken to the to the pro tour, to the world tour, based off of those results. You know the landscape that we're in these days with so few opportunities to get to that point. You know, after your Colorado stage win, that didn't happen. I'm curious. You know, thinking back to those periods of your career, um, were you was that a huge goal of yours? What was what was your uh, emotional response like when you did have some of these successes, but then you know you didn't get taken up to the world tour?
3: Uh, I think early on it was not like a super huge goal just cause I tried to, you know, just be realistic. I went to school and, uh, wasn't one of like the super juniors who was on the national team and then the U23 team this whole, whole four years. So I was like, you know, and you see everybody else who's doing that and those are the ones who get the, get the call up. Um, so it was like kind of just trying to remain realistic. Plus, you know, uh, I've never been like the power guy. You know, I've, I'm just the sneaky guy. <laughs> um, and they don't, I think a lot of the world tour teams, when they're looking at guys to bring up, they're looking at like the watts per kilogram. They're looking at the repeatability of efforts after, you know, 3,000 KJs. And I was, I don't know, like <laughs> funny story about that, actually. Uh, I think it was the end of last year or maybe the year before that, I had an agent who was talking to a world tour team um, who had successfully like negotiated offers for other riders, other prominent uh, riders my age, and he. Uh, the world team wanted; to, they were interested. They wanted to see uh, see my training peaks, see my numbers, um, and so we shared the training peaks account. Uh, like you can just you know shove all your data at them at once, um, and then we didn't really be hear back from them for a little while, uh, and I was a little confused, and so was my agent. My agent told me, well. You know, every time I've shared the numbers, every time the teams ask for numbers and I've shared the numbers, you know, we always get an offer. We, <laughs> we didn't hear a word back. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, I mean, it's I I don't I don't it's not, not a huge deal. I did. I kind of made a hard push that year to try to, like, negotiate with teams or, like, really put all the feelers out. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's not it's all right. Not not too concerned about it. I, I'm really, really stoked to be with rally.
0: I always thought it was weird because I looked at the wins that you had and you know, yeah, there was an element of sneakiness to them, but there was also some I don't know, he-man effort there. I think back to your stage when at the tour of Utah 2016 and it was a hard day and you were in a breakaway and they you know, the domestic teams put their strongest guys on the front to try and bring you and Ruben Campioni back and it and it didn't happen. And I was like, Holy cow, this guy is you ended up winning. And it was like, these two are extremely strong. And Robin, the guy who's taking the, the big pulls and winning at the end is, is really strong. You know, how does, how do you go about winning races? What's the typical way by which Robin Carpenter wins a race?
3: Uh, man, it's either going to be from that early break that somehow like sneaks away with too much time, or it's a, a late break. So um, for example, in that Utah stage, one of the reasons why we had so much time was because the first hour of that race was like, that's, they've done that stage a couple of times, but usually there's a bunch more racing before you get to this section called the Hogsback, which is down in uh, Escalante. But that year they started it in Escalante and then we were immediately on the hardest part of the course and the race was just totally exploded, which is why it was only two of us. Cause everybody was like, nah, I'm okay with not doing that. Um, but then it took ages for the yellow Jersey to come back to the front. And, you know, that's the team that's going to control. They're going to ride. Everybody's waiting for the yellow jersey to come back. And so by the time we got to the top of Boulder Mountain, we had eight minutes. Um, But the other way, uh, late break, perfect example of that, where I didn't actually win, but came close, was uh, in Denmark this year. Uh, There was one of these stages where all those stages actually kind of had like a hard circuit at the end with like a small hill, you know, nothing crazy, two-minute hill, but it got a little steep. Um, It was just, you know, just tough. And. Uh, they, as usual, the Euros race way too hard the first time or like in the beginning of these hills and it's just exploded at the top and no one really wants to do anything. And so I just like, well, well, you know, I'll follow this guy We' follow you know, hit out here on the top when everybody else is just looking at each other. No one knows who I am. No one's ever seen this rally Jersey before. I just look like an off brand room pot. <laughs> um, and so no one's gonna, no one's gonna chase me. And then, uh, and that, and you know, all of a sudden you've got 30 seconds when you really shouldn't. And, uh, unfortunately got Definitely got, (laughs) needed a few more seconds to stay away from Van Art, Uh, but you know, that guy, not, wasn't too upset about that.
1: This is stage two, right? Yes. So you ended up third on that day.
3: I like a good stage two. Yeah, that's your day? <laughs> you can go back and look. And they're Actually, all stage two. It's point. kind of ridiculous. Ugh.
1: Well, I mean, to your point of the yellow jersey and that Utah stage having difficulty, you know, often those races, sort of a sprint finish to start. So maybe exactly. the leader isn't quite as equipped to handle something lumpy and weird, like, like what you were talking totally about true. in Escalante. So it, that's a. will that's a, that's a, remember that if I ever do a stage race, stage two. Stage two. I, I like the way you think. I'm just always going to remember off. Brand Rude pot That's good too. Is that
0: Taco Vanderhorn? No, that's some other guy. Let's yeah.
1: let's let him go.
3: Best name in Pro Cycle. Oh
0: yeah. Oh, right?
1: Yeah. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I love the Taco. Thank you. He's he's gone to a lot of NL. Yeah, like, I mean, World we'll Tour yeah, year. Yeah, we are big Taco Vanderhorn fans <laughs> on this podcast. So when you look at the you know, your
0: success in breakaways in the domestic circuit and then moving up to race in Europe this year and, and being in lots of breakaways. What are the difference? How is it different to get into a domestic race breakaway versus what you saw in Europe this year?
3: Well, let's say in the domestic race breakaways, especially some of the bigger races, it's usually like the first or the second move that goes. Um, and so what I would always do is I would just, this is actually a, an Oscar Clark piece of advice, was just wait until you're absolutely sure that that's the move. And then on the six lane highway, just get a good run at the group and just hit it and, you know, make the 30 second to a minute effort and bridge across. And then you're good. You don't have to go with all the extra accelerations. You just sort of wait around and try to be observant and then hopefully have a good one minute effort in you. But then, uh, the Euro races for one, you got to be at the front because they will block the road no matter what. Um, they will make an attempt no matter how wide the road is to block it. That's like, number one tactic over there for the early part of the race, which is kind of, I don't know. You kind of see that a lot in like cat three, four races when you were growing <laughs> up. And then when you see it again, at like the highest level of this Like, what on earth, but that's like standard practice now. So one, you got to be at the front and then sometimes if that first one doesn't go, if they aren't successfully able to like ram everybody else off the road, who's trying to get around them around the wall, um, then it's going to be on for like another hour. Uh, and then you just gotta be fit and still be observant. You can't, you know, if you're over eager, then it's just impossible. And un- unless you're some sort of a legend like, uh, Adam, my teammate DeVos, you'd be surprised, but he can get into a break, but he doesn't do it by being like, like with a scalpel. He just does it with a sledgehammer. He just is with every single acceleration. Um, and then somehow ends up in there. Um, I'm just trying to be a little more surgical about it. Uh, But yeah, once that, once, once you see them starting to form that wall, you've got about 10 seconds until it's done and then you've got no chance unless you want to toss somebody into the gutter.
1: Wow. So (sighs) European racing, basically a cat three race, exactly. except they're much stronger. Um, not to jump around too much, but actually I wanted to go back real quick to that stage of tour, Denmark, uh, wow, Van Aert, someone we keep talking about, especially this year with the way he raced in the classics. I mean, you saw it up, up close and personal. You were right there with him. What do you think? I mean, is he is he the type of rider who can actually make an impact on the world tour coming out of a cross background like oh, that? Oh,
3: definitely. I mean, Denmark was a little bit easier throughout the day. It wasn't like one of those days where you're averaging 280, 300 watts for the entire time. So maybe that's a a bit different. But also, I mean, we also did another race with another cross phenom, obviously, uh, Vanderpool, right. an Arctic race in Norway. Yeah. Um, and both times, those guys, everybody would be going... You know, say it's a sprint, say it's a hilltop, and everybody's ripping it, going as fast as they're going to go, and then they just put it down another year, and Ooh. right away. Vanderpool did that like two times at Arctic Race, and Van- I mean, they only had that one really tough hilltop at Denmark, but it was the exact same thing. I mean, I had 15 seconds at the bottom of this hill at 1K to go, and it was like evaporated in no time at all.
1: Man. Yeah. Vanderpool, to me, seems like he's got a little more just pure, natural talent. Which is why it's crazy that he's just going to, at least for now, stick to mountain bike racing and cross because you could you, you could see him like being a real factor in the world tour yeah.
3: road. I mean, maybe he already gets paid enough and it's not really that much of a draw. I think, I think that's yeah. one of the big things that draws the cross guys to the road is like you get a big pay bump. Um, and, you know, I bet he likes doing those dirt races a lot more.
0: I think you're right. Uh, I love that finish. Uh, one of the people I follow on Facebook like repeatedly posts it online as like some sort of like dramatic finish in cycling. And that, of course, is stage three of the Arctic race
1: of Norway. Yeah, you when, were, one too, we were one stage too late on that, Robin. Yeah, I know, right? So yeah. in
0: this stage, Robin's in the breakaway with Adam Tupelik and another rider. And it's 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 thrilling. It's coming into the final few kilometers, get to the base of the climb, you ditch your third breakaway guy, and then it's just on, take us through the that final, I guess, K and a half.
3: Actually, if I could go back slightly further in that race, because sure. it's kind of hilarious. We So that day was uh, Adam's day to get in the break. Um, Adam DeVos. Adam DeVos. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Be more specific. That's okay. We had two um, Adams <laughs> <laughs> uh, So that was Adam's day to get in the break, but he was only a minute and a half down on GC and 20th. And I was there just to sort of help him out, um, get in the break and we both ended up in it. And then I have never, I mean, every time you get someone in the break, who's like a little high on GC, you end up with someone complaining, maybe a little bit, maybe a lot. Uh, Cause you know, if someone's high on GC, the defending team's not gonna let you get much time. And then maybe you don't have a shot at, actually making it to the finish, and it's just a symbolic gesture. The whole break's just a waste of time. Uh, This time, we had a break of ten, and there was not one but two, but eight riders all sitting on Adam and I, all just whining. I've never experienced so much whining in a breakaway about a GC guy being in the break. And they just wouldn't. I mean, it was amazing, the commitment to the whining. (laughs) And (laughs) I mean, we eventually just folded. We are like, oh, all right, well. I mean, at least there's two of us here. If there was just Adam, I think he'd have stuck it out. But... Uh,
0: and so was this like whining in English, like making pleas to you? Like, hey, what are you doing?
3: Yeah, totally. Totally. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, so then Adam eventually dropped back, which was kind of a bummer because that was like the whole plan for the day. But then, you know, kind of ended up going reasonably well. We had a big group and old Mr. Tupelik was the, actually the one who whined the least. He was the most quiet, he was a little sniper. And I should have known better after after seeing that. He just kept pulling through and doing his doing his work. Um, and then at the end of that race, uh, he almost dropped me completely the first time up or the second time of the hill, um, when it looked like it was getting close and touch and go with, uh, with the Peloton. Um, and so at that point I kind of maybe knew that like this was, you know, we could try, but I, I <laughs> he was maybe the better man. Um, and you know, I tried to, I tried to play a little bit, a few games up there at the front coming over the top of the hill cause it was kind of flat and a little bit of headwind. Um. So trying to make a face here and there, make them think that you're hurting a little more than you are. And of course they don't, like I said, they don't know who we are. So if you, you actually get the benefit of the doubt from them, if you hang back and do a little less work, which is, uh, you know, that's how the game's played. And you could, you see the arrows doing it all the time. I watched the other guy, that third guy basically making faces as the other guy pulled past him. And then going back to sort of like normal <laughs> race poker face as he pulled in. um, <laughs> And then uh yeah I kind of overcommitted probably on the hill the last time on the front just cuz I thought we were going to get caught um and then he just smoked me totally if I'd been able to stay in the draft, I might have been able to hang on for a second, but I don't think I got caught with 50 meters to go. The more and more I watch
0: that, the more I'm like, Adam Tubelik owes Robin Carpenter like, a lot of beer or something. Because, salmon, Arctic race. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, some salmon, because I feel like it was your monster pull on the front that allowed him to stay away. If you don't take that pull, he's not getting the stage. That right.
3: was almost a bit of a theme for that trip. I did that again at this one-day race in the Netherlands that was uh, called the Kogeslachem Noor. Um which is like a crazy gravel race. Um that really? nobody knows about. Yeah, huh. yeah. It was well not really gravel. I mean a road race. Well, sure, with, but there's dirt. gravel. It's like kind of a I don't know. Like a format like a Strada Bianca or um what's that a other word for it? Trobro. Or yeah. yeah, except these guys just decided that gravel meant Dumping pea gravel on a on an asphalt road cool. uh, a week before the race, so like it was just all one size stones. So he yeah. just sank straight into six inches of pea gravel. Um, but anyway, that was another race where like I took another guy to the line and like almost. Basically won the race for him because I was being an idiot.
1: A room pot guy, in fact. Uh, yes, indeed. He yeah. probably thought you were on his team.
3: Old Mr. Uh, narrow Handlebars. I'm sure you've seen him all over the... <gasps> oh, it was
1: that guy? It
3: was that guy, yeah. Jan Willem van Schip. Apparently he runs those bars because he's a track sprinter, and no one decided to tell me that when I took him to the line in a two-up breakaway. Oh, <laughs> so,
1: see, that's a... Yeah, yeah the rally team should more scouting report on exactly. that guy next time. Yeah, those bars are crazy. Those are like, what... 30, like 34 at the
3: top. Yeah. yeah. I think they, they, they flare out a bit, but yeah, those, I mean, he's, he's an arrow arrow guy.
0: He's a big Famously, guy and he's pretty arrow from Amstel gold race. He was in the break of the front right. group at Amstel driving it with those crazy bars.
1: Yeah. Narrow bar guy. Well.
0: So Robin, that speaks to a larger question and you touched on it here, which, you know, this was f- Rally's first year, the pro continental ranks, and you did a pretty ambitious, uh, racing campaign, in Europe and also in the Middle East. And so here you are part of this team that's showing up to these European races for the first time and other teams don't know who you are. Um, What's the reception like both on the bike and then off the bike? Like are people, you know, are are the European racers asking you questions? Do they want to know who you are? What's it like for being that American team that just all of a sudden steps into these Euro events.
3: They don't care about us until you're doing something slightly wrong in the Peloton and then they really care a lot, (laughs) which, and that was like, it it was kind of funny in Oman, um, in those middle East races, it's kind of like racing in California with these giant roads. Um, and these days everybody wants to ride together as a team. Everybody's, you know, no matter what any part of the race, everybody's riding together. Um, (laughs) it didn't matter what was happening in the race, where it was or where we were if if we were ahead of some other team in the little lineup in the peloton they were they were coming around us <laughs> they were they, we they did not want to be behind the the no name american team that they'd never heard of um and that was you know that was the beginning of the year and it actually it got a lot better towards the end you know that last trip in august it was a lot of the same teams uh that we raced against all year a lot of these sort of pro continental teams you know you end up at a lot of the same races and some even some of the world tour teams but they start to recognize like the kit and like i mean I mean, I thought we did some pretty respectable stuff. Some had some pretty good results, and then you know, people stop sort of uh, screaming at you for for doing something you know pretty minor, which was nice. Mm-hmm. And then the race organizers are always like everybody, all the fans and the and the organizers are all super friendly. It's really nice.
0: What did that reception change, or was it impacted at all by the Dubai stage to Hatta Dam? You and Brandon McNulty famously made it into the early breakaway. And uh, McNulty was, you know, right there for the stage win It just got swarmed uh, with a few meters to go. Um, first of all, what are your memories of that day? And, yeah, did that result of that performance change Raleigh's uh, reputation at all?
3: It made sure that we were never allowed to have two in the break again <laughs> at, like, a race with those world tour teams. Um, like, we did it at—we actually forced the issue at Oman the next week. Um, me and Adam DeVos got in the break again, but— we were chased hard for about 10 minutes, uh, by some of these teams are like, you can't, you can't have two again. It's not, not allowed. Uh, but that was, yeah, Dubai, that was quite, that was quite an experience. Cause you're, you're at, with all these world tour teams, all these like major sprint teams who are, you know, they can ride the front, they can chase things down. No problem. Um, and it was, I got a credit, uh, Eric Wahlberg, our DS, uh, for hatching that plan. Um because he knew Brandon was gonna have a good good ride in him somewhere. Um and if we had two guys then you knew that you could commit fully and you'd at least have one other guy like fully committed to to powering that break. Um and that was yeah, that was a fun day. It was kinda of like I feel like we came into Dubai like a little out of shape. Um if I would go back and look at the numbers. Well it's the start of February <laughs> yeah. for crying out
1: loud it's like what do you expect? True,
3: but man, you'd be surprised at how good those guys are going at the start of February. Like I was getting dropped like like a pure sprinter at Oman up small Hills. Ooh. Um, but yeah, that was, I mean, my favorite memory actually from that day is that not even that, I mean, Brandon didn't win, but know, yeah, that's fine. It was like the whole point was the, I mean, that's what makes a race exciting is that super close catch and it's touch and go and everybody's sort of on the edge of their seats. But, uh, immediately after the finish, we all roll down from the top of the dam and we're in this like gravel parking lot and everybody's getting into their vans and, uh, none other than a quick step director, Brian Holm. Who is like kind of known for being a legendary, like hard ass, um, rolls up to Brandon and pats him on the stomach and says, uh, Hey, you almost got us, huh? That's the last time we let you go. <laughs> and it was like, Oh man, that's Brian Holm. That's your ticket to the world tour there, Brandon. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so the running joke for the rest of the week was that. Uh, Brandon was going to get kidnapped. Um, and we Brian Holm was going to come with some chloroform and we wouldn't see Brandon again until the following year at one of the classics and he like, who's Hey you, Brandon, you,
1: how's it going? Uh, who's that new new tall, skinny kid on quickstep?
3: Who's Brandon? I am Lars. Yep.
1: <laughs> yeah, they reprogram him.
0: Exactly. <laughs> uh, that was a definitely a dramatic day on the bike. Um so now Robin you uh, you know you spent a good chunk of the year racing over in Europe. Uh, then you came back and you know had this wedding and you're back in the domestic scene and you know we've talked a lot about the state of the domestic north american scene and some of the storylines going around it everything from UHC and Jelly Belly to folding to some of the races going away to you know just overall kind of a down year looking forward for 2019 i'm curious what are the discussions like that you have with you know uh, former teammates or friends who are racing in the domestic scene. What are people talking about right now?
3: Uh, I guess you know people are just talking about what what kind of teams are going to be around. What who who could you even you know possibly race for um, with such a dearth of, of paid positions? Um, and I think you know honestly, you're going to see. I, mean, I don't know if it's really going to change too much in terms of who's at the races. Um, I think just you'll have far fewer guys getting paid to be there. I think people will end up getting to those races and traveling to those races no matter what. Uh, cause that's just what, you, what you do, what you know. Um, and it's going to be hard to, unless you're like kind of like an older guy who is eyeing up retirement anyway, like these guys are still going to want to be at Redlands. They're still going to want to try to be racing Joe Martin or, or what have you. Um, I just think that no one's going to be getting paid. Um, not only because there's no money, but also because it's a buyer's market and you know, some of these continental teams are going to have, they'll probably have like 16 riders just cause you can just bring somebody on, give them a bike and two pairs of kit and then and send them on their way for a, for a 10 race day season. So it's a, uh, I don't know, it's pretty grim. I've never felt so fortunate to have a, have a two year contract. Um, and I made the, made the change to this team is when I did. Um, but it's also, you know, there's been some, there was a point where it really looked like, Oh man, we're going to have like five fewer teams next year. But then, we had Floyd step up, uh, presumably to sponsor silver, which is great. Um, there's a lot of young, young riders on that team who are like pretty good and just waiting for like a breakout ride. Um, and then um, last time I heard him, was still going to be around just maybe a lot more downsized, so it won't be as, as grim as maybe what we thought. Um, but you know, I don't know. Some people want to talk about how much of a, I don't know they want to like, you know, everybody wants to ascribe bigger factors or like ascribe this to a big trend, um, towards, you know, maybe everybody's, no one likes road racing. Everybody wants to race on gravel or cross or whatever. Um, But I think you see sort of macro cycles like this all the time. Um, Everybody talks about how big like road racing was back when the course classic was happening, um, sort of in that time period. And then it took a while for us to like get back to like having, you know, another race stage race in Colorado. So I don't know. I wouldn't like really engrave the the tombstone for road racing United States yet, but. Uh, there's definitely I don't know it doesn't look great,
2: <laughs> Dane is road racing dead? No, no way, road racing is the best kind of racing, so i I will still be here covering it, even if it's just there you go, Robins racing and like one or two other guys not getting paid. I'll still be here, don't worry,
0: I'm with you, I follow some of these discussions about, ah, well, you know, gravel is killing the road or you know, and there's definitely look there's. There's something to be said about, um, you know, from the participatory side. Okay, I want to ride on gravel roads or I want a new change. And, you know, the office park criterium is dying. But I'm with you. I want to pump the brakes on some of these notions that, you know, um, people just don't care about road racing anymore. Um, You know, you look at interest around the Tour de France. You look at VeloNews.com web metrics. You look at um, a lot of other... Factors out there that point towards fan interest and even participation interest still being there on the road. Um, yeah, there's growth and gravel. Yeah, there's new momentum around a return to momentum around mountain bike racing and some of these different types of racing formats. But I don't know, Spencer, do you still ride
1: your b- road bike? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, I mean, it, well, it, it, it's interesting too, though. Just recently, the news of EF Education First Dray Pack presented by Cannondale, powered by Rafa. <laughs> They're gonna do some gravel, some Mm -hmm. mountain biking. Um, Fred, I know you've been talking to some people about that and what it might look like for those races. It's sort of an interesting move as far as like, oh, is this uh, is that going to boost those races? Is it going to is it going to affect these riders and their ambitions as road riders? Like, you know, what does that mean? I it's it's curious, And, and definitely, I've talked to some of these uh, riders at the pro continental or continental level who are not going to have a gig for next year, who are pretty seriously considering, or actually maybe already planning to do like a mountain bike racing season, going to, you know, these Epic rides races that I went to big money prize purses in those races, that sort of thing. It's, uh, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say it's not a total, it's not like a, it's not totally a passing fad by any stretch. It seems like there's something afoot, but, um, Yeah, I mean, you know, as long as people tune in to watch the Tour de France, there's always going to be that cascading effect of interest in in pure road racing.
0: Yeah, Robin, are you going to be doing
1: fixie crits
3: next year or what? (laughs) I will never do a fixie crit. There's absolutely (laughs) no way I've seen too many, like, just heinous videos of crashes. But... Uh, I was thinking of making a push, maybe to get the team to send me to Dirty Kanza. I don't know. That seems like it could be kind of at least interesting. I don't know. It'd be something different. Um, and I still have yet to do the Belgian Waffle Ride, which is in my basically my backyard. Yeah. But it's just a, a scheduling conflict usually. But you know, I don't know. I. It seems like from a from a marketing standpoint, if you're a sponsor or a team or just trying to build a brand, then it'd be clever to go to those races, in my opinion. Um, and it's, I mean, how much of a an investment could it really? ad i mean everybody's already rocking disc brake road bikes like you just throw some fatter tires and send your guy with his race bike and boom you know, you've got somebody and as long as you do like some good video and post it to the gram like <laughs> there you'll you be go good. That's, yeah. what,
1: that's what pays the bills <laughs> uh, yeah i actually did belgium off ride this year it's pretty fun definitely nice. um it's a it's a weird race in terms of it being just a huge like spectrum of of terrain where there's a lot of road so like having a road bike is a big advantage but then there's like a few sections of <laughs> legitimately, <laughs> legitimately <laughs> rocky mountain bike trail and it's just there's no it's a wrong tool for the job race totally. which but is, i think that's which, like the whole point that is exactly yeah. the whole point of it um but the, you know the other thing i think about is if If these teams start to emphasize those types of races, um, you know, eventually if if it if it becomes so popular or if it's so valuable from a social media standpoint, are we going to have kind of a a lost generation of American pro roadies who, you know, they they paint themselves in this corner and they don't have enough opportunities like you have had to go to Europe and really, really throw down and have some time doing proper European road races to prepare yourself for who knows, maybe, maybe you get a world tour ride someday. Maybe you're going to a grand tour or classics or, or whatever. It's a, you're not going to learn that by going to dirty Kansas. Unfortunately,
3: I was just talking with Joe about this a little bit, Joe Lewis, uh, my host for the weekend. And he was like, man, you guys on, on rally in, you know, five years, all the only guys are going to be racing are, are 18 year olds. You're only going to be racing 18-year-olds on the road. That's it.
0: Well, it's weird to think about because there was a time in the not-so-distant past when the U.S. Domestic League was thought of as the you know the minor league, the development ground for going across the pond. And like I said, there was this well-established model of like, oh, if you are the domestic guy who wins a stage of one of, you know, Tour California, Tour Colorado, whatever, or you finish as like the top finishing domestic guy, then that is... That is the proverbial ticket punch, you know, if you're within the right age group and within these other things, you know,
3: if you have, if you have the wattage, which apparently Robin
0: over here, geez, gosh.
3: I'm just super arrow, Just so
0: aero. <laughs> yes, narrow get, those, bars. Yeah, get those narrow bars. But, you know, if that model goes away, then I do think that, you know, I, I think it would be sad. And I don't think that that's something that the cycling – Community should strive for. We can all talk about disruption and trying new things out, but I do think that keeping the domestic road races uh, scene alive is good.
2: I think uh, we have not had a big American classic star for quite a while, so maybe on the optimistic end, if people do start doing more Dirty Kanza, more Belgian wild ride, whatever, we could have uh, increased engagement in some of those kinds of races, Strata Bianca. So that's good. Maybe. Maybe that happens. I mean, you still need to race on the European roads, I think, but it could kind of generate some young American riders who actually know how to handle the bikes in those kinds of Rough terrains, and maybe we get a big American classic star sometime.
0: Well, according to what Robin said over here, since it's all Cat 3 tactics over here, what you do is you get some gravel guy, put him in a bunch of Cat 3 races, and that'll get him He's ready. He's ready to go. Yeah, get <laughs> Ashton Lambie, the kid with the mustache, there we go. throw him in a bunch of Cat 3 road races, have him do Dirty Kansas, send him to Roubaix. With okay. Robin, he'll be fine.
1: Boom. Totally. He's clearly got an engine. Pursuit. Oh, yeah. Pursuit R- World Records, no joke. Yeah. Well, guys,
0: before we bail out here, do we have any final questions for... Uh, Robin Carpenter, Robin, what is your 2019 going to be looking like?
3: I think pretty similar, except we're trying to wrap in some bigger invites to some some bigger races, uh, maybe some World Tour stage races mixed in there somehow. Um, but I think you're going to you're gonna see somewhat similar, probably some racing in Spain in the beginning of the year, really getting... Getting your ass beat uh, by the by the Spanish and the Portuguese up up every single hill. Um, but I think yeah, I think we'll probably see something similar. I heard we were starting the season again in with Valenciana and Oman. So yeah, it'll be. I mean, it's not kind of nice to do some similar. It's the same races. You learn things a little bit instead of just hopping to something new every time.
0: Any races we'd like to see Robin in? Mm. Other than the Tour de France, obviously. Well,
1: yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't I think um I think you'd do well at uh maybe um maybe one of the like midweek uh, classics like uh, you know maybe maybe not full on Tour Flanders but oh, uh, yeah. one of those uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's a big, that would be cool current yeah. current I'd love to get thing. into some of those
3: yeah. It's funny it was funny discovering at the in that August block that we did that there are a whole set of races that are made for people like me who look like me Yeah and we don't have to go up a mountain every time like we do in America
2: What would you make a uh, GP Quebec in Montreal
3: Oh, those were excellent. Yeah. yeah, super cool races. Not only because like you were really, I mean, world tour race, so you're really with the best guys, and all those, all those guys are the best one day racers in the world, getting ready for you know ostensibly biggest one of the biggest one day goals of the of the year. Uh, so it was actually it was quite neat to get that sort of uh, firsthand look at how good these guys can really be. Um, and th- my takeaway was mostly just that they just can do that same effort that they did. Five minutes in, five hours in. Yeah. that's that's the biggest biggest part of it. Oof.
0: Yeah, Ouch, painful effort. I mean, there's like fifteen thousand feet of climbing or something like that. On this yeah,
3: Montreal was definitely Montreal. The, I think the hardest race I've ever done. Like oh, one race I've ever done. It was a, yeah, like a five minute hill every lap, sixteen laps followed by a couple of like smaller rollers. Oh, yeah, it was. actually it's like the world's worst circuit race a funny anecdote was my best five minute power of the year was the first five minutes of that race because they start
1: (laughs) at the bottom of the hill that's right
2: oh Oh, god yeah. Well, it was a nice you, hotel you get to go back to though. True. So, true. We like hey. the hotels.
1: Were you guys <laughs> on trainers warming up for that? No, I forgot to warm up. <laughs>
3: <Ooh>. <laughs> just straight into it cold. Yeah. That is hard.
0: Well, hard.
1: Dane wants to see
0: you do the Tour de France and Sick. Spencer wants to see you do like Kern of Brussels Kern. I'm i I'm think I'm still with like uh, the Alamo last race at last man standing fixed gear crit or maybe one of the red hooks. <laughs> red hooks,
1: hey. Uh, just throw you in there. Dirty Kanza yeah, just yeah. We'll be out at Dirty Kanza come
3: do it yeah. Yeah, I mean you never know what is we're going to be sleep five our, years sleep and on a couch is, or something yeah. everybody's doing red hooks and dirty cans of, so yeah. that, that'll be what it's come to
0: this disruptive new model of racing well thanks so much to Robin Carpenter for stopping by Robin Thank we'll you, let Fred. you get out of here and we would love your feedback on what we talked about today you can email us at webletters at pocketaftermedia.com we'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on News.com. subscribe to the Bell News podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Google Play and while you're there please leave us a comment and a rating become a fan of Bell News on Facebook at Facebook.com/ VeloNews Magazine. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Velonews. the VeloNews Podcast is produced by VeloNews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the VeloNews Podcast, yes, even Robin Carpenter's, are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boo Boo Blowout playing the Bernard Pretty Classic Soul Drums.